0: One thing that we actually have a real big misconception of is that high HRV is always best, and that's actually not the case. And and really, it should be termed of well, if you have a norm of your HRV, it's been in the higher band. that range that should be maybe what we consider optimal so our high power reactive explosive athletes all had a a lower hrv fingerprint and again what i mean by that just to be clear is that their hrv would fluctuate at the lower levels when it comes to the parasympathetic reactivation so how quickly our sort of parasympathetic branch of the nervous system can can come back into play
1: that is dr robin philip team and you're listening to the epic table podcast Welcome back team for another installment, if this is your first time joining us, welcome to a show where I get pretty heavy guests on and we discuss everything from human performance right through to BD and help you guys be inspired for your own future, your own human performance Um, and I totally am every single day. Speaking of right now, I'm in Texas and I'm a part of something truly special and unbelievably motivating. Robbie Ballinger, a fellow 10,000 athlete, is looking to outlast a Tesla. So he is doing, you know, uh, effectively how this is working. <laughs> Dan, how does he outlast the Tesla? So this is how it works. So essentially he's, we've recorded um, a Tesla's length at 100% battery. It goes about 242 miles, this, this particular model does. So after doing that, Robbie has within a certain time limit to outlast that Tesla or you know, pass that distance, which he's given himself seventy-two hours. So it's it's not long. It's you know a bit over eighty miles uh, every day. Uh, when you consider the fact he's not having any sleep uh, or minimal sleep at that, it's uh, ridiculous. So only Robbie would challenge himself to doing that after you know self-invoking the. Colorado Crush which is something that is incredible we've had Robbie on the podcast before so you can go back and listen to the episode he's also the uh, up until last week is the most amount of circulations or laps of Central Park or does the Central Park loop uh, he got up to 16 I believe um, so that's ridiculous in one day anyway so Robbie's a, a, a specimen and I'm fortunate to be part of his crew making sure his nutrition was dialed in pacing with him along with a number of different athletes it's been amazing to have people come down and ultimately support him uh, but what he's doing is mentally unbelievable. Um, physically, obviously, but mentally unbelievable. So I'll be uh, putting together the team and i will putting together a YouTube video for this that you'll see behind the scenes of it all. So make sure you look out for that. Uh, also, really exciting this week, team. My awesome company, Charlie Street, launched nationally with our products. So that means that you, if you live in the US, you can get Charlie Street chorizo and bolognese which is really exciting, Uh, not to mention the fact that we had a really exciting meeting in Indiana this week while I was in there the boys did, but if you want to be someone who would love to finally try the chorizo and bolognese. I know a number of you already sent me pics this week, which I've posted on Instagram. We're just so exciting to see this awesome plant based good for you made out of real nutrients and real foods come to life. Head to charliestreet.com, head to that products page, all the goods as we like to call it, and uh, get yourself chorizo and bolognese. I'm so excited to see what you guys come up with. You also get send a free ebook, so that's pretty cool too. So, team, this week we have Dr. Robin Thorp on. Now, Dr. Robin Thorpe is an absolute specimen as well. Why do I say that? Well, Dr. Robin Thorpe, he is a senior performance scientist and conditioning coach. And if I was to say the top three organizations, sporting organizations in the world, I think one of them would be Manchester United, and a lot of you would not argue about that. He's been a part of that for some time. He's been there with Sir Alex Ferguson. He's been there with the amazing uh, David Moyes. Like the, the, pedigree and the team that he's been around is unbelievable put away the fact that they've got so much success on the field they've also got it off and why i love this is as a senior performance scientist at this organization it has always been on the front foot in this particular area of sport when you think sports science you know in particularly in the epl where they're doing a lot of gps tracking and everything He's been at the pinnacle and it shows because the team has had so much success. So I'm really excited for today's discussion because firstly, I'm blessed to have him on. Thank you again for you all for having so many uh, downloads, leaving reviews. Because really pushing Epic Table Podcast up the <laughs> algorithm for people to be downloading it so much for getting guests like him on. So thank you again, guys. If you do want to leave a review on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcast, please do. Just hit that five star if you want. Leave a review verbally as well or write it down. That'd be awesome. But uh, yeah, Dr. Robin Thorpe's discussion today is a lot about recovery and understanding regeneration practices, which I love. We talk a lot about methods of fatigue and performance monitoring. If you're someone who's got some wearable technology whether it be a whoop or an aura ring or anything else, it's really cool to get that data. You're like, oh, I learned so much about my recovery. But how do you apply it? What strategies do you do to help improve your recovery? Like right now for me, you can probably tell I'm slightly under the weather. I've had minimal sleep, I've run probably a marathon every single day, um, which is nothing compared to Robbie. So I can't really complain. I won't. So, but you, I need rest. That's the obvious one. But what strategies can we do to really improve our recovery? That's some stuff that you would definitely get from today's podcast, which I'm really excited about. We obviously go into some of the papers that he's been a part of and published as well. So if you really want to understand performance, recovery, or even just strategies that you can actually apply yourself to look after yourself. Today's podcast is for you. One thing that I like to do is obviously dial in my nutrition. And along this whole journey I've had in Texas, I've been double dosing, absolutely double dosing, on athletic greens. Uh, the reason for that is just all the nutrients I need. It's really easy to take on the go, particularly with these travel packs that I have and robbies i've been giving it to robbie as well so he's making sure he's still getting his nutrients in because obviously we have our electrolytes sometimes it's easier to liquid form when you're in this environment too um and so for the past six years especially on these type of trips i've been having athletic greens every single day sometimes twice even sometimes three depending on how uh, i'm feeling at the day how much work i'm putting in so if you want to also join in on that and be a part of this awesome situation where I get my prebiotics, my probiotics, and my digestive enzymes along with my 75 micronutrients and minerals, head to athleticgreens.com forward slash epic because if you use that link specifically, you'll also get those five free travel packs and a year supply of vitamin D3 along with your subscription. So head to athleticgreens.com forward slash epic and you'll get the five free travel packs, the vitamin D3 plus K2, along with your subscription. And people are like, well, it's kind of expensive. Um, I'm just to put it out there. 77 bucks a month works out to be less than a cup of coffee a day, which if you think about the amount of vegetables you probably should be eating more of, this will help support you getting more plants in your day as well. So just saying, just a cup of coffee, that's all it is. Every single day to look after your health, look after you, and make sure you can actually get more out of your day, which potentially means, you know, getting better at work. I don't know, I'm just saying. Anyway, more on that later. Because we have Dr. Robin Thorpe on. Legend, animal, awesome dude. Dr. Robin Thorpe, welcome to the Epic Table Podcast. Dr. Robin Thorpe, my man, welcome to the Epic Table Podcast. Cheers,
0: Dan. It's good to be here.
1: Mate, it's uh, always good speaking to a doctor. Just sounds super, super sciencey. But uh, particularly when I'm speaking to someone from the UK, I know from now on I'll start calling you R. Dizzle. Robin, whatever works, man, but uh, don't worry, I won't make you cringe at yourself when um, I do so, even though you were eligible, without a doubt, man, but uh, speaking of eligible, you have quite the pedigree of uh, a cV dude, and I, I love getting to speak to someone like yourself because I get to geek out, my listeners know, I get to geek out in this exercise science world, I love studying it, even I, you know, after practicing it and going through the course and everything, It is till to this day one of the funnest things I love talking about and my listeners also do, bro. So, mate, I'm absolutely stoked to have you. You pretty much came up in conversation after I listened to you on the Whoop podcast and then I heard you across other channels. I honestly went into a deep dive and I was honestly surprised how I had not already been connected with you based on all the awesome stuff you were doing. So, just to set the tone though, man, you're not actually in the UK right now. You're in LA, correct?
0: That's correct. Yeah, uh, recently moved to California from Arizona, um, but yeah, as you can tell, and as you've said, I'm uh, originally from the UK, so it's a big difference in terms of climate. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I'm enjoying life in California so far. So far, that's for sure.
1: I can imagine, man. I can only imagine. And I, typically, this time of year, it's pretty cold. <laughs> Britain. Where, where were you living in the UK? Were you London based? You no, no. So I
0: was um, sort of Manchester area. So I was I was born um, in the sort of South Manchester area, and then mm. following sort of all the university and getting all the qualifications, um, which I did in Nottingham. Um, in the sort of I actually studied sports science and also computer science, which uh, back back then there wasn't much of a link. But in fact, at the moment, it's become the probably the most noticeable link um, of the sort of professions, particularly when it's coming to analytics now and how sports science and sport in general is progressing so much. Uh, But following that, I I sort of moved back to the sort of my hometown area and um, luckily enough um, landed a job at Manchester United as a sports scientist and a fitness coach. And then that was that was a decade of my life. Um, lots of highs, a few lows, but um, what an experience to uh, to sort of be there and and be successful with the team. And I mean, when I went in, it was the it was the era of your gigs, Neville, Scholes, Ferdinand, Sir Alex Ferguson. So it was a,
1: an amazing time. Wow, yeah, you had uh, you had quite the the team around you that were just notable. You know, best in class, even outside of the period of time, which is amazing, and obviously having um, you know Alex Ferguson around is is pretty, pretty epic, man. And just growing up, were you someone who was uh, you know gun ho at you know football or soccer, as some other people may have referred to it? Was that that was something you wanted to pursue, perhaps as an even athletic career?
0: I'm I'm not going to lie and say I thought I was good enough. I mean, I think a lot lot of people say like that. I think you end up in sort of the roles that are supporting athletes or servicing um, teams, etc. I think a lot of people say they're the failed athletes, and I think I knew early on that wasn't going to be me. But I I played at university level and and continued to play until injuries got the better of me. But um, I think from a I just loved football or soccer. And I think growing up in the sort of late eighties and nineties, like we were playing on the streets and it'd be a case of, you get kicked out of the house and you're, you, you're sort of playing football all day on the streets with your mates. And then you come back for, for tea, for dinner. And that's how it was then. So I think, I think the majority of people in, uh, in England and the UK, that was, that was their upbringing in their life. So that was, I think ingrained in me. And so, and I've got funny stories as well. Like I, I remember my bedroom wallpaper was all Man United and duvet covers, pillowcases. So when I actually started working with these these athletes, it was a it was it was a it was a funny situation. But again, just to be around those that winning mentality, I think taught me a lot that I try and take now into my new role, or whether it's within research or within daily life. I think. That sort of winning mentality is really important um, for for many things that I think everyone go goes through on a day to day basis.
1: Mate, you were with Man United for ten years, and I think being at Man United for ten years and they weren't and they, like say they weren't successful would still be an absolute learning curve. The fact that you were doing that like, pretty ten like a period that was pretty amazing in general, like that would have been on two on twofold one you're working but as a, as a fan I can only imagine what that experience meant had to have been like for you and even your family growing up in that same that same kind of atmosphere but going into year one there I'm, I'm interested to know how how over that 10-year period sports science had changed you spoke about you know, you'd spoke about computer science, exercise science, and there's different parameters, obviously, even your your degrees, which help you manifest this amazing skill uh, and expertise. But going into it, how what was the level of understanding of say sport science uh, when you first went into it to how you left it?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I think. I was probably the first generation of, I think, true sports scientists who um, were going into professional football or professional sporting organisation in that specific role. There were, I mean, the people before me were were more sort of fitness coaches, coaches, stroke sports scientists, but we were the my generation was probably the first one. So at that time, there wasn't the technology there is today, and athletes. I think more importantly had never experienced this. So the first couple of years, and when we talk about tracking the load or the stress of what the players do during football um, or soccer, um, we were asking them to start to wear certain monitors or devices so we could better understand what they were doing. And again, there would be, I remember, certain individuals, certain players who, would, who again, had won the lot, who are very traditional, who it was a big change for them. So I think in, in one breath, I feel very lucky that we were the sort of the first to try and integrate some of these things. But I also think it was a, a great experience and learning curve for me to deal with maybe certain athletes or players giving you a bit of, um, a bit of a batting back basically saying, oh, well, no, I'm not doing this or this is not normal for me. Because I think the main thing that that gave me and instilled in me was being able to really articulate and develop relationships with these players who are human beings and, and try and develop an understanding as to why we're trying to measure certain things or collect certain pieces of data. And so from the, from the from the beginning, it was a case of evolving what was very much a conceptual theoretical framework of sports science and exercise science and understanding various energy systems and how recovery may work through various systems and how different programs and developing physical qualities relate to football may work. And it was it was certainly a case of evolving that over time and coming out of it in 2019 things like using GPS, which is the, the tracking system that the majority of professional teams and athletes are using nowadays. It's the norm now, and athletes are very much used to, to that way of working. Um, and so I think like from a technology point of view, I think it's evolved and it's it's come on leaps and bounds. But I think with this technology era and wearable era that we're now, so accustomed to, I think we start to then lose a little bit of those more relationship-based, um, human-based skills in actually how we try to improve performance or improve recovery with these individuals and players. So I think it's sometimes it can be a trade-off, but I think certainly over that that 10-year period, we were able to innovate hugely. And a large portion of my role was to integrate applied research and so I was conducting a a PhD on the side of my sort of full-time role as a a sports scientist and, and conditioning coach and that was to understand more about how we could monitor the status of the athlete so at any given time of the week of the month of the year of the season could we identify how this athlete was responding to that stress and that load of training and competing every day or three times a week, but also have an appreciation, understand some of the stresses that may come from outside of the sport as well. So um, I think it was a, to sort of summarize that question, I think it was a a sort of triangulation type approach of evolution and, and developing a new way of working but also developing relationships, and also trying to innovate and apply various new philosophies and, and frameworks. To again, the end of the end of the day, it was about improving performance and improving that support to that athlete.
1: Man, that's that's so interesting. Is um, I remember when I was when I finished my masters, and I was interning with some um, respective rugby codes in Australia. Um. The teams that I was working with, there was only, you know, this was NRL and Rugby Union, I would say only 10 to 15% of them were actually using wearable technology to, you know, record data. And, you know, five years before that, there was none. And it's so interesting we hear, you know, first and foremost when you enter into – that was probably around 2000 – was that 2011, 2012, I believe? Yeah, about that. So around that time. And in that period, I definitely personally noticed, it, it, like even just immediately, the reliance upon data, and I didn't know it then, but now reflecting upon it, how much it does, it even makes the scientists, exercise scientists more related or more, sorry, more more dependent upon the data, at least that's their mindset, to make informed decisions versus as you just, uh, you know, I think this is like, a, I guess, a rhetorical question, but does what, what's, what's the difference between understanding the athlete personally or through a relationship against their quantitative data? Because ultimately, you know, I think that's one of the best things about differentiating between your exercise scientists, their ability to connect with an athlete, record data, and as you've just already noted, is subjectively make an informed decision because you know what's best for them. So taking on two forms of data, both you know, subjectively and one quantitatively, and making an outcome for them to to win, but uh, it sounds like, and I can only really understand through what you're saying, is over time we've been so enamoured with data, which I can obviously understand, but um, but you know it, it can it can obviously to some degree yes do more harm to an extent, right?
0: Yeah, and completely. And just hearing you talk there, it makes me think about one of the first things that we mentioned was that my sort of first degree was in. Sport science and computer science, and back mm-hmm. then there was no relationship. It was almost like, well, there may be some individuals who are interested in sport and i t or computer science, and so let's create a degree. but now the the sort of influx of data science within sport is huge, and now I think maybe more so in in the us, I think we're getting sports science and data science. Um, confused a little bit and I think a lot of people I think particularly in the US associate them as being the same thing and so what we've what's happened I think is that we've developed great minds and great data scientists who have this computer science passion but then they're stuck behind a computer or a laptop all day and then they lose that contextual um, side of what sport and what working with athletes and developing performance really is and so that's where I think I, I use that, that sort of example quite often, because I think we really I think you need to go through the experience of, of failing with athletes or understanding that you will get kicked back or you will get an athlete who won't want to do something, or they will disagree with you. And I think understanding that, that experiential situation is key in order to try and have positive impact with athletes using data. Because if we go purely to the data side, and again, if we're developing practitioners who are just sat behind a laptop, then for me, the key integral and real value in using data is that contextual side with the athlete and impacting their life or their sporting career or their performance in a positive way.
1: What makes a good sports scientist? Nailed it. Essentially, that's what. Uh, that's why you're so good, right?
0: <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> yeah, there you
1: go, mate. I'm unbelievable. how good. Um, interesting. Interesting. And so, I, like I, I'm personally interested in the actual data for a second around energy, um, energy systems, and just off the top of your head, in in the sport of football, to what degree. Percentage of their overall performance is in say the ATP PC, um, and it's just some sort of the sprint phase, versus the alactacid phase, versus the uh, up upmost aerobic phase, and maybe you can just break down those three not in terms of what they are, but uh, maybe the, the the output that they would usually do because between football players, aka soccer, and AFL in Australia, these two are the, actually some of the most commonly research sports team sports I should say and it's so interesting to hear how much distance they cover and how much the speed at which they're covering that distance at
0: yeah it's a really important point and I think I mean first of all it's good that we're now uh, terming football football and we've we're starting to get away from soccer uh, I'm not sure the uh, the American audience will like <laughs> that but um <laughs> no, it's important I think wh- whether you're working with football American football, with rugby, with individual sports. I think one of the first things that should be administered or at least understood is the the actual physical and mental demands of that sport. And of course, many of the team sports will be quite similar when you talk about the energy systems, but when comparing to true endurance sports or individual sports, some of these differ greatly. So having a one-size-fits-all approach to sports or sport activity activities is probably something that uh, is 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 going to need some improvement but i mean from a football perspective there's a, a a huge um component of aerobic demand involved but it's really an intermittent and we're, we're seeing now it's a lot more repeated sprints repeated high intensity or high speed running efforts which we're seeing more prevalent and at a high level over time and so when it comes to whether it be training or fueling or understanding what needs to be recovered, I think we start to really give emphasis to those physical demands. So understanding the differences between the metabolic cost, which may come from the more aerobic side or from substrate metabolism when it comes to glucose or glycogen um, replenishment, but also from a mechanical damage point of view and a mechanical stress point of view which may be elicited from that repeat sprint or the repeat intermittent work so again like you say I think it's a a huge component to begin with when we are dealing with these athletes but also understand that every sport is going to be different but each position within those sports may also be different and just because a centre midfielder may Um, run or the locomotive movement is X one week, the next game it could be completely different. So there's also an intra-individual variation when it comes to demand. So a lot of these things, we can have the sort of textbook um, answer of, well, what are the physical and the physiological demands of of football, uh, which may relate to various levels of lactate or the VO2, of the average player but I think we need to probably look a bit more critical in what those individual factors may be um and then I think from that point we can then start to really positively impact what our nutritional demands are what our recovery demands are what our fueling demands are and also what our training prescription sh- should be in the lead up and following games I think I think it's a great starting point to then really unpick the various areas that we can, as practitioners, as nutritionists, as uh, physical performance coaches, as S&C coaches, it's a great starting point there to then really hone in on those details of what really is important for the athlete and for, for say, the team and maybe even the head coach when it comes to uh, a performance uh, plan.
1: Yeah, so by effectively understanding their energy Uh, pathway that they're most predominantly using you can therefore either improve it or know the right methods to um, you know focus its recovery and so it's um absolutely crucial it's like you know and as you said everybody's different and everybody's sport can be different but their positions are a lot different as well even the way that they play the positions can be different so whether you're in the super bowl recently in the last month or so that we saw or playing in the nba or playing at a recreational league of baseball there's obviously um, different sports that acquire different energy usage and so it's obviously having the different modalities to help recover is really important too um man yeah this is a-
0: just a uh, uh, sort of Inter- intersect on that point just because it's soccer or football and this is our average demands of this sport during a match for example there'll be certain training sessions or different periods within a season where the composition of those energy systems that you mentioned when we talk about aerobic system or anaerobic and the various substrate metabol- metabolism uh, cascades then we need to understand that as well so for example from a nutritional point of view and and I think in nutrition and particularly in football, it should be periodised to the demands that we'd like to we, like discuss. So there should be there's, there's a term that's that's always been talked about in the last few years, and I first came across it through James Morton, who's a, a physiologist, and nutritionist in the UK, and it's it's sort of fuel for the work required. And so if you are during a season, a phase in the season, and you the work that is required for you is at a certain level, then we need to try and match some of those nutritional interventions to that. And I think one thing that maybe hasn't been done as well in the past is it's been a sort of one-size-fits-all approach, but I think now we're getting to a point of, well, if it's a pre-season phase, for example, and, well, we're actually trying to stress these athletes a little bit more because we want to try and adapt and get fitter and fitter. So smashing the athletes with lots and lots and lots of carbohydrate is of course yeah we want them to to not be in a a dangerous fueling status when it comes to injury risk but if we can stress that system a little bit more and sort of teeter on the edge and i think this is real innovation i think we can start to then improve those adaptations by actually increasing and manipulating the stress a little bit more and again in pre-season the whole point of it is to really increase our adaptation potential so it's, it's by no means a simple, a simple process, but I think ensuring that it's not a one-size-fits-all one approach, but it's also not a one-size-fits-all approach during different phases of the season or scenarios, I think that's also something that should be considered as well.
1: Massive, mate. Absolutely massive. And if we're applying this to the, uh, the high performer in the home-slash-office environment... I'm assuming the same could technically be said for the way that they go about coming back to work after the holidays or even what they're doing in season versus uh, maybe them, like say they're an accountant and, you know, there's tax time. I'm, ashamed, like, I'm being dead serious with the fact that there's going to be more stressful times and there's going to be a greater focus on a requirement for recovery, particularly when we look at the HIV throughout the year and how that can play a part in, you know, some sort of prevention of a situation they do not want.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think in the example you gave, I think the the immune system and an immune response is probably gonna be a key a key factor in that example because I think with obviously social or, or work related stress, we can be in a compromised status when it does come to the immune system. So ensuring that from a nutritional perspective and also rest and sleep, um, I think it's going to be really important that we don't compromise those factors in that, in those circumstances. So there's certain things from a nutritional point of view, which we we could look at to offset maybe some of those things. Uh, But again, a lot of, we we still don't really know the practicality of these things. So what social and work stress may be so powerful that supplementing or fueling at a certain level may not have enough strength to, to even touch the sides, let's say, if there's a real social or work stress that is really compromising that immune system. But there's certainly good habits that we should all try and adhere to. And I think, and again, if we know we're approaching times of social work stress or travel stress, for example, if you know you've got a, a long haul travel uh, coming up and you're, you're going across time zones, it's probably a good idea to, to try and understand what Nutritional strategies or sleep strategies or lifestyle strategies you can put into place prior to that um, event to try and increase the probability that you won't suffer any sort of immune compromise situation where you could get things like an upper respiratory tract infection, so the common colds, flu, et cetera. And obviously, in these times, COVID obviously uh, still a risk and in that bracket for sure.
1: Mate, that's so interesting, and I usually wait for the end for action steps, so I feel we're on a good wicket here, mate, so um, did you do you hear what I just did then, by the way? I just uh, got wicket in there already, uh, it's about 20 minutes in or so, um, we won't talk about what is known as the ashes for all my Australian and English uh, followers, but uh, anyway, um, mate, very interested, you bring up a topic that I think is so important to discuss, given that it is something you don't have to be an athlete for. You don't have to be a high-performer. You just have to be human. And uh, we all travel to an extent. We all get stressed to an extent. And obviously, our bodies, therefore, have to deal with these uh, these these unfortunate situations. So we've talked about nutrition at a very, very brief part of this podcast already. I want to kind of just double-click on the action steps or things that you see in your research, not to say that this is, um, as you just said, like we still don't know certain things, but what you have seen to some degree work. Uh, I know you've talked about the placebo effect before, which we'll talk about down the line, but just for now, what do you see nutritionally, particularly in the area of like travel and work stress? Because I think that's pretty applicable to, to the listeners.
0: Yeah, I think when we when talk about travel, and if we take that example of sort of traveling across time zones, sleep is going to be a key thing. And, there's certainly things and sleep strategies which which can be administered um, to try and offset some potentially sort of negative alterations in in how we feel, how we respond, and that stress associated with travel. Um, and so, one one big thing is is sort of morning light and morning light exposure, and that and that's that's been seen even without traveling. That can improve things like mood. It can give our circadian rhythm our biological clock that sort of anchor point to work off so our metabolic our biological processes are are sort of lined up and and quite consistent but for sure I think if we we talk about travel making sure that we look at that morning light exposure in the destination that we're moving to as soon the, the quicker we can have that exposure through through our eyes I think the more likely we're going to try and speed up our our sort of acclimation to that destination and i think also adjusting meal times again keeping on the, th- the theme of nutrition adjusting meal times as early as possible to the destination has also been shown in some research to improve some of the acclimation to the destination so i think some of those things i think are really really important and there's been strategies used in the past of sort of how long are we going to be at the destination before we come back do we fully acclimate do we try and go halfway um, an example would be when we when we were uh, back in at manchester united we were on a summer tour and it was south africa then to china uh, then to scandinavia and then back and one of the strategies that we used in Europe was to stay on UK time. I mean, in Europe, you're only really traveling sort of to maximum will be four hours in difference from a time difference from the UK. So when we traveled to Europe and we played in the Champions League, for example, you'd only be away for one to two days. So staying on UK time, kept things is reasonably consistent. But when it was about going to the Far East and prior to my time they i know they'd had some negative experience with traveling to the far east for for a short duration so one of the the strategies that we used was to actually stay on spanish time so it was a bit of a it got a bit confusing i think nowadays with with like phones and the automatic change of, of 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 time it would probably make it a little bit more difficult but we sort of stayed on Spanish time once whilst we were in China. And so we then had to make sure while meal, where we were eating our meals, the, the, the curtains were always closed when it was time, time where we were trying to be, right, this is time to sort of go to sleep and try to avoid that, that sort of natural light of, of China. So we didn't acclimate to Chinese time because we were traveling back to, the, to Scandinavia in the UK after only a few days. So there's there's there's, all, there's always certain strategic and I would say innovative ways to try and deal with that travel stress and that sort of jet lag that we see. So I think that's a really important factor. But I think as well, during travel, we tend to drink less in terms of fluid. So we tend to dehydrate. You've obviously got the confined spaces and making sure our mucosal immunity as is an optimal level. So there's been... A little bit of research showing that keeping sort of salivary immunoglobulins uh, active can improve or protect against potential um, infections. So the use of chewing gum just to keep the saliva flowing has been used. Um, Of course, we have vitamin C, uh, which can help boost the, the immune system. But again, we probably don't know enough about the bioavailability of higher doses or the actual practical Um, response that this has. I mean, it's a good idea to make sure we have our micronutrients at an optimal level. But again, if a pathogen that is so potent gets into the system, the most amount of vitamin C will will not have that much of an effect. So I think that's, again, that probably leads into some of the, some of the the practical and the the myths that are around and the trends in sort of nutrition and lifestyle and, and recovery that, um, I think it's quite important to address as well.
1: Mate, absolutely. This is, we had Dr. Stephen Lockley as a circadian rhythm specialist on, um, talking about how he looked at NFL teams and how if you played on the West Coast versus the East Coast, how, you know, for every hour that you are ahead of your existing time, it takes a full day to get back to a, a, an accurate circadian rhythm state. So for you talking about being you know returning to the uk within three days it would take you three days to acclimatize so you're not there for long enough and then you'd have to go back and then it'd take you another time to, So like it makes a lot of sense that when we are traveling say you're traveling short periods of time be it you know two hour time difference or maybe even up to four hours to some degree try and remain in the same time zone to alleviate the potential risk of extra stress on the body so you're eating at the same time you're finding those uh, abilities to maybe even block out, um, you know, blue light when you need to. Uh, obviously having the, the the whole room in which you're in to some degree chilled to that nice chilled state, blocked out as well, obviously no light in general. But that just makes so much sense, the fact that you also now incorporate that into how you are planning out your athletes and their schedule. And if you tap that into also the notion of a simple Simple thing of chewing gum, which just shows to the degrees of what, uh, what data is now telling us. That's epic. I love that. I absolutely love that. I can, I can only imagine, by the way, were you the person responsible for planning out the, uh, the plane time itinerary as a result?
0: No, no. So back, th- back then, it was um, the, the medical doctor and uh, the head of um, fitness and conditioning. They they were involved with the sort of planning. I think this is where going back to one of the earlier points. I think we can be we can all be sort of textbook physiologists or be very theoretical. But once you're in that environment and you have to adapt, um, that's where I think people. That's when you you earn the money, and that's where mm-hmm. I think the real impact is. Uh, practitioners or whatever we are in terms of supporting athletes and teams, that's when I think coming together as an interdisciplinary process um, is is key. And again, some of the decision-making in that example happened in South Africa where we went prior to China. And it was, well, can we start, theoretically, we know what the best thing is. Well, if you're dealing with an athlete now, well, Practically, practically, can you get them to do it? Well, if not, which is the answer to a lot of things these days, well, what will what will work for them? And so can we monitor in real time? Can we monitor, well, we're in South Africa, for example, how are people adjusting to, I mean, there was no time zone shift there, but how are they adjusting to the stress? So we have to be dynamic in everything we do, but if we have an evidence-based uh, foundation and ev- ev- everything that's all sort of like evidence born. And then we can then adapt and use our our art of the science and in, in how we work. I think that for me, that's always been a great combination of, of of how I certainly apply some of the the work that I do with athletes and teams.
1: Matt, absolutely crucial, absolutely crucial. So let's talk specifics on recovery because the re- recovery in the last two and a half years has truly blown up. Your role and mine in the food game has become even more, I, I, honestly, it's become even more sexy, right? People are like, oh, I want to learn more about it or I've got this wearable, what can you talk to me about? And I'm sure you've had everybody now where, you know, five years ago it was like, what are you doing? To now going, oh man, that's the coolest job ever. Um, so I'm interested to now talk even more specifically about the different types of recovery. You've notably talked on different media outlets about this, uh, but you, you you talk about specifically there's two different types of recovery. Well, there's more than two, but you, in, in specifics you talk about mechanical stress versus metabolic fatigue. Do you want to go into those?
0: Yeah. So I think the one, like you say, like I think recovery is the the sort of buzzword for the last couple of years, and I think it's it's going to become even more so, and, and, and rightly so. I think we still need to be a little bit critical of when we talk about recovery, what do we actually mean? And well, if we can understand what we actually mean and understand what recovery is, then the next stage would be, well, do we even need to recover? And so one thing I think that I've I've always looked to do as part of my role with, with athletes, but I think there's there's no real difference between sort of general population and whether or not you you're having to recover from like your example earlier like you're an accountant or you're in a you're a CEO and you're dealing with high level or high number of staff where you're in meetings day to day. I think everyone wants to and, re- and without using the word recovery, everyone wants to wake up the next day feeling fresh and feeling ready to go again. So. I think the concept is paramount, but I think from an athletic point of view, this and again, it goes back to our earlier topic of understanding the demands of your sport or your activity. So if we understand the demands, we can then start to unpick, well, what are our fatigued systems? So if we take football, for example, there's a number of different factors that increase fatigue and worsen recovery. And so you have a, a mental and psychological factor. you have an environmental factor which can change quite quite quickly and 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 be in quite and be quite consistent as well. You have then the more central and central nervous system factor of fatigue, but then you have then muscle fatigue and when it comes to muscle fatigue, I think this is where we get a little bit. I think, skewed in the wrong direction. I think if we understand muscle fatigue a little bit more critically, I think we then can start to implement certain interventions that can actually really improve how we feel and how we effectively recover. And so, as you mentioned, in most sports, and particularly team sports, there'll always be a combination of these two. It'll be metabolic fatigue, so symptoms and deleterious effects associated with whether it's oxidative stress um, a glycogen depletion substrate metabolism could be changes in various sort of ion um, molecules as well we have that side of things and then we also have a mechanical stress and this is also associated with injury from a tissue insult perspective so if we have high level of acceleration or deceleration movements or we sprint a lot or we have a repeated high intensity bout activity, the muscle fibers start to incur this mechanical stress. Effectively, we're breaking down that tissue. And so I think if we we sort of use those two subcomponents as a starting point, I think we start to then unravel this topic a little bit more. And then what we also have is neuromuscular fatigue and neuromuscular fatigue can be born from both of these two components and which is why i think starting at a metabolic fatigue and a mechanical stress um point of view i think we can then start to to really understand a little bit more and and the next question is always how do we know if you're suffering from metabolic fatigue or mechanical stress or a combination and so we know that the demand of your sport, or the external load or what we actually do what we perform gives you an indication so if you are doing more aerobic based training or more intimate in exercise at a lower level but for higher volumes then we tend to associate that with metabolic fatigue but again if you're repeated sprints acceleration decelerations a lot of resistance work in the gym if you're if, if you're if you're a an avid gym goer that's more mechanical stress but also how we feel is probably one of the most simplest way of understanding these two facts and so once we incur mechanical stress we then get a secondary damage phase which is part of this inflammatory response to muscle damage and what happens there is we get sore and we have sore muscles and everyone's felt this soreness of of the musculature. And again, it's, it's normally termed DOMS in the, in the athletic community, but that can give us an indication quite quickly that you're probably suffering or experiencing this mechanical stress, structural damage. And this is a secondary damage phase. And I think generally if you're not, and we know you exert yourself and you may feel a bit tired, lethargic, heavy legs, we can then probably, assume we're experiencing some element of metabolic fatigue so from a a simple point of view just how we feel can probably give us an indication of what we're what we're experiencing but i think following that and again in many sporting organizations many athletes and now how monitoring devices and the way we understand the science we can we can probably delve into that a little bit deeper and we can use things like hrv we can use things like Strength assessments, or how much force are we able to output at a certain time, or during a certain test? So, although very complex, I think we can. I think we should probably start to to simplify this area a little bit more,
1: mate. The interesting thing to me is how listening to your body is still something we fail to do, and I and I mean that just purely just. Like, I, I feel people will either, you know, they, they, they won't go about something that's naturally like, okay, well, my, my body's sore. What does that mean? Is it my muscles? Am I aching? Do I have a strain? And I'm surprised, yet I'm also, um, I'd be confused for a lot of us purely because there's a lot of confusion going out there as to what that is. And is that like, you know, a case of, well, I am sore as a result of the previous work I've done. So yesterday I did a big resistance training session. As a result, that's it. Or, um, you know, yesterday I did a went for a run and my calves are sore for the first time. I mean, there's so many factors to that alone that I, uh, I, I understand the complexity behind it. Um, but at the same time, knowing, you know, particularly after doing the, the work that you and I have and 100% more time than you, it's something that I think needs to be kind of simplified but at the same time with the likes of your soreness it doesn't necessarily mean that you are you know it's correlated with recovery you know like and muscle building specifically actually you've talked about this you said that just because you're sore it doesn't mean that you are going through the process of adaptation
0: yeah for sure and i think the research has shown that muscle soreness is a poor predictor of of adaptation And that's that's the reason why the context, I think the key word here is context. And because if you're just the general population and you're going in to do a resistance training session because you're trying to build muscle, you're trying to create mechanical stress and structural damage. And that secondary damage phase, you're trying in, in a way to maximize that. That's the whole point. We're trying to improve adaptation. So the context in that example whether it's me or yourself, is let's improve stress as much as possible. Let's incur a large amount of stress because we know that is the response our body takes to adapt, become fitter, build muscle, etc. But if you're a Premier League player, you're, for example, the other week in the, the Super Bowl, you're a player and you have muscle soreness two days or a day before competition, then adaptation, we don't care about that. We care about consolidating recovery. We care about making sure that tissue is as regenerated as possible and you're feeling as comfortable and as fresh as possible. So the context in those two examples is completely different. And that's why when we do talk about recovery, it's such a misleading term because at some points in life and in certain individuals, athletes, general population – consolidating recovery is going to be important but in some cases maximizing adaptation is going to be important and those two things are on the same continuum so it's and and that's where various interventions that we use so um i've done quite a lot of work of in in how we can use cold therapies or heating therapies to to maximize the recovery in athletes but the interesting thing is is they actually work in opposite ways if we're trying to adapt and so, context is the is the number one key point and take home message. And it's if we can all understand our context when it comes to training, adaptation, performance, then we should be able to, on a daily basis, adjust and be dynamic in how we use an intervention or what is the most important thing. I mean, for example, if you are that CEO CEO of of a large company, and you have an important meeting the next day, and you want to be fresh, then maybe at that time point, consolidating recovery from a psychological and mental perspective is key, but also from a physical perspective is key. And so, well, maximize adaptation if you've been to the gym the few days before isn't probably going to be your most important factor. So, I think if we can try and Bring people on a journey to really understand context and that this may change. And we all, as humans, we all love to be binary. We all love to think yes or no, black or white. And I think in the context of physiology and, and performance in this case, it's not always the case. And I've always, this has been my struggle, is to try and bring people on that journey to understand those intricacies of, of, of how we do sort of manage um, that process.
1: Mate, the modality is so important here. You, you, you're, you're effectively saying the specificity of what your goal is obviously is so in tune with what we train to then get the right recovery, to get the right either performance or recovery. So it comes down to the same basics and fundamentals, which is so amazing. And Just applying it to that specific nature is, is crucial. So just to kind of summate what we've talked about. We've talked about um, the difference between mechanical stress metabolic fatigue in recovery. We've obviously established that, you know, soreness does not correlate with recovery and muscle building. You know, that can be something completely different, right? Something, as you've already noted in the studies that you've been a part of, I've loved how you've talked about how how wearables uh, or data specifically can actually have an impact on um, the decisions we make in not necessarily the best light if we do not take into account the subjective nature of the relationship or the individual. So um, there's some key topics so far that we, we've discussed. I want to now, as you're talking more about specificity, um, I'd love to go into endurance versus resistance athletes. And the reason why I say this is we've got a lot of people listening in right now who are doing marathons, uh, you know, triathletes, um, or even they are doing resistance training. And they may be wearing wearable with the relationship of HIV, they may not. But just kind of noting the differences in how, um, I guess the, the quantitative data, like what that shows between the two differences. Obviously we know um, there's two different energy systems used when you are aerobically or endurance-based training versus resistance training. But what does that mean Hate with HIV? Do we, do we notably have relatively different HIV scores?
0: Yeah so really interesting point and I think the the good place to start here is again back in in the sort of football arena and we were monitoring HRV and again the best football players in the world for 10 years and so we had some amazing data that we could almost pioneer the fingerprint of HRV in athletes and what we found was that a lot of our reactive, high sprint, high power-based athletes, again, that we knew from objective data, from assessments, but also from a positional point of view, so your wingers, your strikers, etc., cetera, your, your goalkeepers, um, they all tend to have a fingerprint of a lower HRV. And one thing that we actually have a real big misconception of is that high HRV is always best. And that's actually not the case. And, and really, it should be termed of, well, if you have a norm of your HRV, it's been in the higher band of that, um, that range. That should be maybe what we consider optimal. So our high-power, reactive, explosive athletes all had a, a lower HRV fingerprint. And again, what I mean by that, just to be clear, is that their HRV would fluctuate at the lower levels when it comes to the parasympathetic reactivation, so how quickly our sort of parasympathetic branches of the nervous system can come back into play. Um, and a lot of our endurance-based athletes, again, so we would test some of these properties of athletes and we would also know that center midfielders, box-to-box players are generally going to have a higher endurance capacity. They all tend to have higher fingerprints of HRV. So their their range, their bandwidth was at the higher end. So they would have a very... Large reactivation of that parasympathetic activity. So th- there's certainly key differences, and I think it's definitely important to know that and understand that just because your HRV may be lower, to, for, for example, to mine, that just may be that just may be your genetic makeup or your makeup from an athletic and physiological point of view.
1: So this is the interesting part. You're talking specifics around. HRV to an individual. And I, I often hear people trying to be like to be honest, I'll be completely straight about this. HIV is a number, and just like any number, we always want to be the best, right? So you always want to have a better HIV. And typically we associate a HIV the number, uh, the higher it is, the better our HIV score, which, as you just alluded to, is actually your HIV is relative to you, whether or not you want to believe it or not um, is, uh, you know, I guess on you, but say you have a HIV of 110 relative, right? If you have a friend who's got 140, they haven't got a necessarily better HIV than you. The HIV is just relative to what theirs is. Now, as you said, if your HIV's average is 110, but gets up to like a 130 and can drop down to say an, an 80, but you keep it around that 110, even above that to that 120 stage, you want to keep it in the higher range of your HIV bracket and just, just make sure that's what what you one hundred percent were trying to say.
0: No, exactly, exactly. It's it's if again, if, if again, when, when we talk about HRV and the number, we're, we're probably all associating with um, devices like Whoop or like the Oura Ring, where they actually create an algorithm based off a a more standard scientific HRV representational figure. So, again, to to reiterate like you said, Dan, if you are at the higher end of your range, which could be completely different to my range, that is good for you. And so and again, another example for this is that we would track this for so long and on, on such a, a high number of occasions and we started to see some really massive, massive numbers of individuals who we were like, well, this is this has either got to be an error or us, there's something completely off here. And what we actually found was that HRV can really spike and go into supra-maximal levels, like really high. But we actually found this was preceding an illness. And it also occurred in certain cardiac um, clinical conditions as well. But in the case of the, the illnesses, we, we actually saw on a number of occasions that... The, the days preceding a, a common cold or a sort of flu-y type uh, episode, that the, the HRV scores were going really, really high, like higher from these, higher out of individual bandwidths, individual ranges. And what we sort of proposed was that once that sort of illness and that pathogen's in the system, our, our body's upregulating itself from an immune perspective to try and fight it off. And so we enter into this really high parasympathetic state. So this is always good evidence and again this has been seen also in some some research in 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 high level swimmers as well. So it's it's just a, another another piece of the puzzle to again make sure everyone understands rel like absolute high HRV isn't always considered optimal and let's move more to a relative
1: high HRV um, based off individual ranges and bandwidths. So my next question and one that I often get is how do I, how do I adjust my HRV? And I specifically get how, which foods help me improve my HRV?
0: Yeah, so this is interesting because I've always said don't chase numbers and all right, if you look at the HRV scores and it's for example there's certain things so HRV is such a sensitive measure and there's certain things particularly um, for example alcohol that can have a real potent effect on HRV and so in some certain cases even a, a small amount of alcohol can have a, a real damning and plummeting effect of HRV yet that doesn't necessarily associate with the real physiological status of that individual. So we have to be careful that we're not chasing numbers and we're not trying to chase high HRV all the time. It's actually normal that if we're training quite hard and, and rigorous and we're, we are stressing, stressing the body, like we've discussed before, it's important to stress the body when it comes to athletic adaptation. We want to see some fluctuation in, in, in HRV because that's giving us that indicator that our body is under that stress and that again it reminds us that we're human and that we are actually under a physiological change so i think that's that's one thing to certainly consider um and again i I would never be chasing high hrv numbers um i think it may be if you are training and you're eliciting stress then we fall under, well, let's consolidate recovery. Let's try and recover. Let's let's give that example of, well, we want to try and feel the best we can tomorrow. So let's try and reduce any stress that we've incurred. And so from a nutritional point of view, it's maybe ensuring that from a fueling perspective, so from a carbohydrate perspective, we're not in a, a deficit. And so we, we need to even match, or certainly if we're talking about building muscle, we need to try and go above and beyond our carbohydrate and energy um requirements again from a protein perspective we want to be looking to intake protein around i mean depending on everyone's body weight from that 20 to 30 gram per meal every three to four hours and again following the exercise or following that rigorous um training it may be that we add we, we double that up, we use 40 grams. And maybe prior to bed, it's we look at some more slower release proteins at a higher level. So throughout our sleeping nocturnal phase, we're still making sure our protein synthesis is at a positive balance. And it could be that we even look to, there's a lot of new research coming out and that polyphenols and phenolic compounds from fruits and berries may improve some of those processes associated with muscle damage so again we probably see a reduction in hrv in response to muscle damage so if we can try and find those nutritional interventions which may improve that so our kings are carbohydrate and protein but then it maybe we look to maybe that polyphenol type approach where we're looking at fruits and berries um, it may be that there's some even newer research that's looking at a, a, a metabolite which is is mostly found in pomegranate which can improve some of the some of the mitochondrial regeneration as well so I think there's 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 many ways we can do that but I think some of the the basics of those those macro nutrient guidelines and and getting the basics right and again moving on to then sleep from a more lifestyle perspective they would be my sort of go to factors um but yes yeah, it's, it's such a it's such a broad subject that we could probably we could probably discuss for hours of different ways in which, from a nutritional perspective, lifestyle perspective, training perspective. Um, of course, you mentioned actually recovery interventions, and we know that cold water Im- immersion or ice baths, cold tubs, that can actually stimulate the autonomic nervous system. And, and it's been shown to improve HRV. So it actually improves our parasympathetic reactivation. So that Part of the the nervous system, which HRV is trying to give us an indication of, it actually improves that higher level HRV um, perspective of that. So many ways we can we can try and do that. And again, I think for me the next the next level of of improving health, lifestyle, recovery, not just in athletes but for the general population, would be how can we periodize all these different things we know. Have certain interactions with our physiology and and how we respond and how we feel. How can we fit that all those pieces of that pull together to create the ultimate sort of dynamic, real time guideline for for athletes and and again, everyday people.
1: Mate, the, the modalities you're talking about are you know the cold therapy, eating. I mean, I think without actually having the data in front of me. I'm sure we can kind of understand the, the importance of a variety of micronutrients and metabolites are not specific. You know, I think there's a number of things that we've seen with, you know, particularly reducing inflammation, all those properties associated with, uh, you know, um, preventing the onset of potential oxidative stress throughout food, right? So um, I'm interested perhaps in the sense that just, just purely thinking about it and this is actually not knowing, perhaps eating the right food prevents prevents the need to activate the sympathetic nervous system to respond to certain things. So it's not a case of improving a HIV score directly, but by eating the right foods and doing the right modalities, it prevents the need for something else to activate, which would um, have an effect on our HIV, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, so it's almost like trying to preempt and trying yes. to, yeah. I mean... That's the thing, I mean, it's, there's probably a case where the horse is already bolted uh, mm. type of approach. But I, I know, like, from a, again, that sort of antioxidant, polyphenol approach, Yeah, um, I mean, it's not uncommon for, for athletes in that sort of day, maybe two days prior to competition, to load up on some of that type of thing. So whether it's it's cherry juice, I mean, that's the most common, but there's, I mean, there's so many um, ways we can do that. And so you sort of... You, you, you're banking and you're you're building up that system prior to that stress, so that's certainly been a been a strategy I've seen um, being used. I think also again from the I would say that we've 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 spoken a lot about muscle damage, and a lot of the research is linked to muscle damage when it does come to recovery. And I think that's probably a, a reason why we we probably not got as far as we, we should have done in the research, but from a metabolic fatigue perspective, one thing that we we attempted to, to do a few years ago was to try and, if we know an athlete's in that metabolic fatigue situation and that's what they're suffering from from a recovery point of view, can we, can we manipulate the diet to improve blood flow? Because we know that if we try and impl- improve blood flow, um we're probably that's probably going to be our best bet in to improve metabolic fatigue so we can recirculate those byproducts, those metabolites from the, the exercise regions that, that sort of blood pooling effect at say the lower, the lower limb. So if we think about blood flow and nutrition and foods, a lot of the research and a lot of the, the good work's been around nitrates and particular beets and beetroot juice in terms of improving um, performance more from an endurance capacity and like improving that blood flow and the effect that the nitric oxide system has on on sort of arterial and venous function. And so, why can't that happen from a recovery point of view? So that, this was something that we played played around with a few years ago. And well, if our players have played a game, they're quite highly adapted. They're not experiencing any soreness. We know from their match demands, their sprint distance, or their accel decel demands was quite low compared to their normal we could probably be confident say they're not experiencing mechanical stress well let's then try and improve blood flow and improve that metabolic fatigue factor well if we're giving them a protein shake to check the box of protein requirement and, and carbohydrate requirement following um exercise to improve recovery well can we add a nitrate aspect to that to maybe try and get some increase in circulation from a nutritional perspective. So I think this is the real innovation now when it comes to improving recovery and how we can link demand, which we spoke about at the start, some of the interventions that we're doing, but tie in the nutritional aspect. So I think this is this is going to be, for me, I think one aspect of the future and how we, we really go above and beyond uh, our service to athletes and improving performance and, and recovery.
1: Mate, that nice. is... So exciting. <laughs> so exciting. Look, guess we, um... I think one of the things that with all this,
0: I would say like solid foundation of theory. And I think then there's the conceptual side of, well, let's uncover it a little bit more. I think still our biggest barrier is getting athletes or getting people, getting humans to do the things that we think is best for them. And it's behavioral science. It's how we change behavior, how we manipulate and structure behavior in the best way and again it may be that right yeah you're an athlete and we want to get a load of nitrates down you will how do we do that and that's where i think this next stage and the practicality of that and and i think bridging that gap between high level nutrition or performance or performance science and what the athletes actually do day to day that's where i think it's it's the, the bridge that we need to get we need to sort of build upon for sure
1: well, yeah, this is the area I feel like the next. Well, even it's already happening, but I'd say that I'd say it's like in the next two years you see this be a predominant thing. Like you know, when wearable data was in the uh, sporting world back in you know, say 2012, 2016, when it started to really come to fruition. Um, yeah, and,
0: and and again, so just to intersect on that part, like I think it's great and and have, making sure people around these athletes or. People who understand the process. For example, it was always historically the the chefs or the people around the kitchen work with athletes. They didn't necessarily have the training around the science, or they weren't exposed to the performance scientists or the nutritionists. I think I think we're definitely we're getting better at the, at bridging that gap. But I think that's where how can we? And again. Yourself is, is, is the is the prime example. Like we've got that amalgamation of science, nutrition, and someone who is cooking the food and preparing the food for these athletes. That is where I think that bridge is going to be best uh, best filled, and I think that's 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 got to be the the future as well.
1: Absolutely, don't worry. I'm geared up for it. I'm almost just preparing myself for the. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm just prepared for the influx of potential questions and applications that i have to send out and do do do, you know the whole rigmarole but no i i think the more i see research go out there and and honestly i I see a shift in the athletes themselves coming to you know specifically themselves coming to like actually i want to do this then it obviously instigates the teams to then i'm going to do stuff and then as a result what happens is then the cycle of the high performers, the non athletes who then do it. So it becomes like this cyclical nature where um, it becomes almost like <laughs> it's like the way that certain areas of Manhattan and the world become gentrified and then popular. It's, it's, like, but it's like we're going to a gentrification of uh, recovery and HIV through food at this point in time, which is really exciting.
0: Yeah, um, and yeah, for sure. And it's sort of like trying to harness and maybe restrict some of the sort of more. The trendier things that I think people get word of and I think that's one thing which I think is is something that we all have to try and manage and try and help educate people and yeah we know that collagen in certain aspects is going to be beneficial in a return to play injury scenario but I mean seeing people putting collagen sweetener in their coffee a couple of times a week is not really going to do much good, I think. So I think it's getting that, getting those, trying to sort of fight some of the 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 maybe not so evidence based trends, but also trying to harness some of that interest, and enthusiasm, and, and 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 building it from there.
1: All all about just making sure you keep your finger in the pulse and trusting people like yourself, mate. That's what it's about. <laughs> That's what it's
0: about. And, and eating edamame beans for breakfast.
1: Oh yes, exactly. We didn't put that in there, but uh, my awesome listeners when. When Robin was telling me, like we do a mic check beforehand and get him to ask what he has for breakfast, and he told me he had edamame purely because he was not able to get enough protein because he had no eggs. So smart thinking, edamame, solid amount of protein, big tick from the chef over here, uh, dude. I um, about two weeks ago when I was in when oh when was it? It was a, like about a month or two ago when I was in LA. I went to a place called Remedy and it was with a mate of mine, Ross. And they had this cold plunge, and it's so interesting that when you get into the cold plunge, and this is, I, I've done a lot of cold plunges in my time, but this is the first time I'd done breath, breath work associated with it. And so you do this breath work to do a really nice slow activation and be in that sympathetic state, uh, parasympathetic state. But then I once I got into the cold water, all of a sudden you have the short breaths, like, the and as you know, that does nothing but activate your sympathetic nervous system. And so it's just so interesting talking about cold plunging and just a little word of knowledge here after learning about it even more so, is if you are doing a cold plunge or if you are someone who is in a state trying to uh, you know, really connect in that parasympathetic state, do not do the short breaths. It's nice, slow breathing. Uh, if you are going to go in a cold plunge, just try and concentrate in the first minute of slow breaths otherwise you're going to activate the sympathetic nervous system and only heighten the senses of the cold which is going against uh well obviously being in a cold plunge does everything activating your, your norepinephrine which does benefits in itself but uh i learned very quickly to relax in a cold plunge for the first time i've yeah. never got any uh you know, experiences as well mate
0: yeah, I think. Well, I mean, even sort of the, the sort of the breathing techniques that they've also been shown to have that that sort of reaction, reaction or reactive um, response to the to the nervous system in terms of parasympathetic activity. So even without the the inclusion of a temperature uh, protocol, that still is a has been shown to to be to be beneficial. I think, like you say, I think. It's making sure if you if you are going into the sort of the cold plunge or the ice baths and cold tubs that from a, ph- a physiological effect when it comes to tissue temperature, um, it, it tends to take around depending on the temperature seven minutes for, for that physiological effect to occur. So don't don't quit too too soon, but it doesn't always have to be uh, extremely cold. Um, and we know from from some of the work in the athletic populations that even if it gets colder than sort of 8 degrees and around that 6 degrees celsius um, apologies for the american listeners i don't know my conversion <laughs> although i should um, we can start to then alter with some um, some perfusion cascades at the uh, the muscle cell level so i think some some of my rules of thumb are 8 8 degrees or above at least 7 minutes um, and then, as long as possible after that, and again it's from a physiological perspective, getting that that skin temperature um initial response then that will drive a, a peripheral tissue temperature down and then obviously if we if we're in there for that that sort of specific time, we then get a deep tissue reduction as well in temperature, which then hopefully can drive some of the the reductions in blood flow vary, varying redistributions of blood it's been shown that can reduce metabolism as well from a a muscle cellular level. Um, we still need to see some more research on that, but yeah, I think even if, even if it's a cold bath at home, which is around 20, 22 degrees Celsius, that's still, if you're in there, that's still going to give you a response. So I think to summarize, don't always search for the ultimate cold exposure. I think you can get some of these positive physiological effects, um, just in your own bathroom.
1: The critical things of making it relatable.
0: <laughs> yeah, and also, don't, don't jump. Don't jump straight into a hot shower. Um, the we've um, we've seen that the effects can again. This is more from a muscle and tissue perspective. Um, the effects can can plummet in terms of it's going to improve even 30 minutes after this submersion so the last thing we really want to do is be active and jump into a hot shower so if we can be as inactive and sort of just dry off and uh, and, and naturally warm up from that perspective I think um, we're going to get the best results so the the actual cold plunge or the ice bath or the cold tub is, uh, is just the tip of the iceberg so to speak and pardon the pun
1: Mate, I love that. And just to, just to leave us on a, I guess, a going to bed kind of style question should we have a shower before bed? Does it activate anything beneficial for our sleep?
0: Yeah, so, really interesting area. I think what's very clear is that as we fall asleep, so sleep latency is the, as it's sort of known in the sort of scientific community that process actually involves a cooling down of the body. So what we've seen is that if you have a a hot shower in that period before bed, because we're actually heating our bodies up, we then facilitate that cooling down process. So from going from a hot environment to a cool one, whether or not you start very hot, as long as you are cooling down, that's going to support and facilitate that process of falling asleep. So, and, it, and this has been shown in in insomnia patients and in even people who have have warmed the extremities, of so the feet and the hands. And it's been shown quite clear that actually is 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 quite strong evidence to support that. So, I think in that situation, and if you have trouble falling asleep, I think that could be a strategy which could be used. So. I think one thing that I'm trying to look at, and and throughout the day, can we create a protocol where using cold water or a cold plunge during the day and then in our pre-sleep routine, then use a hot shower, for example, could that be the ultimate framework to improving sleep? And again, we know this facilitates falling asleep, but in insomnia patients, they've actually shown that um their sleep has improved throughout the night as well so i think there's there's certainly some positive um evidence for that and again i think it's something that i think will be quite practical so again to reiterate i'm all about informed practice from evidence and ev- everything being sort of from an evidence foundation but i think this is something that's actually quite practical as well so um i would uh I would I would put my uh, my bets on on that protocol to to improve Mate. falling asleep and, and sleep quality. If you you struggle to sleep, I think uh, that's then a, another question.
1: Huge takeaway. I feel like everyone could could see themselves doing that right now before bed, just in case you are someone who is struggling to get into that deep sleep, or perhaps you are waking up adjusting. Rolling around, whatever it may be, and with sleep still such a huge topic of conversation, any words of wisdom from an exercise scientist like yourself, mate, would be absolutely, absolutely amazing. My man, we've been just uh, having a ye olde time chatting today, bro, um, mate. I'm I'm so to have finally connected and made this first podcast with you, breaking down some really key topics we talked about in the first part. All the big takeaways we've now discussed endurance versus resistance athletes, HIV. We've uh, touched on a bit of the sympathetic versus the parasympathetic in a cold environment. Um, and obviously, I've just had a good time hanging out with you, mate. So I appreciate you spending the time with us today. I look forward to catching up with you in LA, mate. And is there anything that you want to leave us with that's on the horizons for yourself that you're excited, whether it be a new paper, a new study? Um, anything you wish to share?
0: Yeah, I think. Well, I think one, one key thing for me is I think being current, and obviously being current with professional sport athletes, but also being current with applied research. So that's that's a philosophy that I try and hold myself to um, throughout my career. Um, my my sort of current role now with uh, with Red Bull, um, very exciting, uh, leading performance science and, and the conditioning side for the the new facility here in, in Santa Monica um, and also being involved and in, in, in help directing our sort of soccer and, and football teams worldwide is uh, extremely exciting. So trying to build upon, again, pushing the boundaries at the sort of highest level in professional and elite sport, but also trying to to drive some of the contemporary research when it comes to recovery or how we can understand recovery or again, how we can maybe improve performance from, from professional Premier League players in, in the UK to, uh, to world record holder sprinters uh, from a a more, a true physical component. So yeah, very, very exciting times and um, interested to, uh, to keep going. And again, Keep bridging that boundary between the the, the applied research and, and the high level practice,
1: mate. Absolutely, it's an exciting time. And if people were to want to reach out to you or, may or follow you, where is the best? Where is the best place for that to do? Is it uh, so? W- What's social handle? And is it LinkedIn? Is there an email or anything like that you want to leave us with?
0: Yeah, so um, Twitter. I normally sort of keep Twitter for the, the the sort of science side. So I think that is at um, Doctor Robin Thorpe, um, and then Instagram. Uh, try and give a bit more emphasis on the the more practical side over there, a l- little bit more to do with sleep and and all the rest of it. So that is at uh, Doctor Dot Robin Thorpe, uh, and in LinkedIn, if you search search my name, I'll be there. And again, try and share as much as I can. Although I uh, I can't say I'm the the most um, frequent. Um, poster, but I'm I'm trying to get better anyway.
1: <laughs> it is its own job, mate, and guarantee that. <laughs> no, yeah, I can I can imagine, I can imagine. <laughs> but uh, mate, it's been a pleasure, bro. Um, I really appreciate your insights today. Huge podcast around specifics of recovery the actual science if you will uh and i know the listeners listening in today would be absolutely stoked so those who are listening please let us know what you think share with someone you believe will get a lot out of this episode whether it be partner who may be not sharing before bed but could benefit from it or simply someone who talks about HIV all the time dr robin thorpe thank you very much my man for being part of the epic table
0: great cheers dan